Welcome back to the Fun Boat Diplomacy Podcast. This episode's just going to be me covering a topic that's actually been in the news recently, and it's the topic of this uh, Oxford-style debate that I'm going to be taking part in tomorrow for my international business transactions class, which um, it's, it's actually been a really cool class. The only problem is that the class meets every two weeks for about seven hours, so that's Monday from 8 in the morning till 3 p.m., so it's a lot of time spent sitting in a classroom, so it's just not good for concentration, it's not good for the body to be sitting that long, uh, but uh, somehow I pull through every other week. Um, the professor is quite good, but uh, he, he works for the WTO, which... I mean, on the one hand, it's cool that we have uh, someone who is really in the field of international trade teaching us about uh, economics, business, uh, practices, customs, and it has a lot to do with international relations as well. But um, on the other hand, well, the one thing uh, is that he has to fly back and forth between Poland and Switzerland every week, which is, uh, well, every other week, which is why our classes are every two weeks for seven hours. And that, and another aside on that is that his flights are probably paid for by taxpayer money. So I think that's, I mean, that's rather a waste in my opinion. And uh, the other problem is that uh, the WTO is a bit of a problematic organization. So for those of you who don't know, the WTO is short for the World Trade Organization. And it's an international body that has, I think, 164 member states right now, something like that. And it replaced something called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or GATT, um, which was created after the Second World War for countries to get together and, uh, and regulate international trade. And the WTO replaced GATT at the beginning of 1995, and it has some of the um well it's been interfering with the international market as far as countries and special interests become tied to politics uh, especially of these uh of these larger more powerful richer countries and the problems are the same that can be that we can use to criticize um international uh, organizations like the world bank which uh, it crafts and um develops uh, and funds uh, projects that uh, originally were for Europe after the Second World War, when it was, uh, I mean, uh, destroyed uh, by the war, and um, and also we can hit the same criticisms that we might have for the IMF, which uh, International Monetary Fund, which works to stabilize global currencies, and these organizations they have this issue that they that they uh, they claim to be improving, but they go ahead and uh, politicize the issues and end up what they really end up doing uh, somebody might benefit but what happens is they end up picking winners and losers at the international level which uh, to me is is a bit shady and uh, a bit one-sided um, not that i uh, subscribe to uh, marxist international relations theory but it, it, there is some truth to the idea that um, there are um, there is a system, a global system that 
tends to benefit the, the center uh, and uh, at the expense of a periphery. It's not that simple. It's not. It can't boil it down that simply. But uh, there is um, through these these kinds of organizations, uh, in my eyes, um, a sort of uh, international government uh, style body that is uh, picking winners and losers, as I said before. And the WTO, it's just yeah, that's what that's what it is. It's a body of unelected international bureaucrats who essentially levy taxes and uh, dictate world trade and. In the United States, it should be, as the Constitution says, the Senate that regulates foreign commerce and ratifies treaties with foreign governments. And uh, it's in this case, it's the politically connected that, that get benefits. The WTO says they want to reduce tariffs. Even a professor in the first day was kind of um, attributing uh, how great of an accomplishment it's been um, that uh, it was like about... I mean, I saw online it was about 25%. Tariffs were about 25% back in a, right after the Second World War. Uh, he said it was like 40-something, but uh, and in any case, it was very high. And now it's been much lower and uh, around 4%, I think, um, our average tariffs uh, between countries when it comes to international trade. But um, I'd, yeah, that's you can attribute some of that to the WTO, but... At the same time, this is an organization that levies tariffs, so creates new tariffs when countries complain about unfair competition, like dumping, which is something that the the United States has just recently um, done, and in recent years has been blaming China for a lot, uh, especially when it comes to the production of steel and selling steel to United States um, consumers. So it really boils down to. The WTO boils down to this forum that's used to satisfy domestic interest groups and to punish international competition. Um, uh, like I said, especially in these uh, in these uh, richer countries, uh, and it's also a forum where countries can create political alliances. And if we do follow that Marxist uh, IR theory, then we have here a situation where the system favors the center, the most powerful, developed countries at the expense, or they would call, exploitation of the periphery, the developing, uh, what we used to call the third world countries. So, like I said, you can't boil it down that simply to that the that the center, the wealthy countries are exploiting the, um, the, the developing or periphery countries that aren't as wealthy, but there is a grain of truth in that uh, they do get cut a better deal because they are the ones who, um, who, who, who founded these organizations like the WTO, uh, the, the IMF, the World Bank, NAFTA, you can, you can say, um, it, it does, uh, purport to, to, to promote free trade in North America, but, uh, it's, it's actually just a, uh, a, a way that, uh, the international these like uh, Canada, the United States, and, and Mexico can pick winners and losers in their own countries, instead of having consumers and producers meet each other at the supply and demand curve like it's normal in normal economics. Um, I have to, <laughs> I have to put an asterisk here that I'm not an economics um, expert. So if somebody out there has a better idea or a better explana explanation of this, 
uh, I'm open to that as well. But it just seems to me that uh, winners and losers are being picked not by uh, free choice, but by by these uh, these these international bureaucrats that are unelected. So, and another thing about the WTO is that it costs two hundred million dollars, almost two hundred million dollars. It's like two hundred. 90 some million dollars a year last I checked which was earlier today uh, and that's that's taxpayer money that's, that's money from people that could be used for something that's much more productive and uh, an economist that I really like uh, Thomas Sowell he's uh, at the I think he's right now at the Hoover Institution in Stanford at Stanford and he's in one of his essays he said this, this is a quote it is amazing that people who think we cannot afford to pay for doctors hospitals and medication somehow think that we can afford to pay for doctors hospitals and medication and a government bureaucracy to administer universal health care in this case we can substitute health care with free trade which it actually doesn't cost anything like health care is something that uses scarce resources like medication hospitals and uh and and labor the labor of the doctors do they're they're a scarce resource like they it's not it's, it's not something you can just uh create out of thin air but free trade actually isn't a physical good or service that needs to be priced at all other than transportation um but uh somehow the people who enforce things like the wto and nafta want to skim off money for it so um anyway i I have to take whatever the professor's teaching, especially when it comes to discussions about his work uh, at the WTO, with a grain of salt. Um, overall, though, I think he's uh, quite knowledgeable and actually a good teacher. But back to the main topic of this episode and uh, the one of the debate tomorrow, and the topic is free trade versus protectionism. Um, I'm going to be on the side advocating free trade, and it's not that I was assigned this position. I actually I volunteered to to be on this side. It was actually other students who uh, were selected to be part of this, but um, I insisted that I wanted to be on this like not a panel, but on the side uh, defending free trade because I strongly feel that it's the correct position, and it's frankly baffling to me that we're still having this conversation these days and uh, and as it relates to today um, as the news today and uh, current events uh, most recently as a lot of you might know President Trump uh, has put forth tariffs on steel and aluminum so 25% on steel and 10% on aluminum which benefits firms and workers who work directly in these uh, industries producing these materials themselves but the damage that this does to other industries and the consumer are compounded when the effect of these artificially propped up prices, uh, when that ripples across the economy. And that's even without mentioning the countermeasures that, for example, the European Union has declared that it wants to respond with. Um, for the American consumer, though, this affects aspects of production and consumption that involve steel and aluminum. So, for example, a uh, so soda and beer cans uh, made of aluminum with this tariff would go up by a penny, so one cent per can, and that would translate to a penny uh, of a price 
um, increase to uh, any soft drink or, or or a beer that comes in a can in the United States. And but that one penny, you, you have to take into account that America consumes about 20 billion beverages in aluminum cans per year. So if consumption remains at 20 billion cans a year, and I would think that it does because one cent doesn't make much of a difference to someone who's drinking one can, but 20 billion cans then to the economy is a $20 million extra in costs that the U.S. economy has to absorb. So when we discuss economics and economic policy, the key consideration um, that we have to take into account to navigating our arguments, uh, we, we, there's, there's the, the international dimension, the, na the, the national economy dimension, but you have to really consider what happens locally and what happens to the level of communities and, and households and individuals. So producers make up a fraction of the whole population. So uh, when it comes to steel and aluminum, like that, how many of you know anybody who's making steel and aluminum? It's probably none, but uh, they are there. They're important people in the economy, but they make up a fraction of the whole population, a small fraction of the whole population. But we're told that the protectionist policies are for the greater good. And, I mean, think about it. How can that logic follow if the average consumer ends up paying more for goods that they would otherwise buy at a lower price. Um, obviously, additionally to that, they, they, this would have a greater impact on those with low or average incomes. And it can only go one of two ways for the consumer. Either the consumer spends that extra money that would otherwise have been saved or invested in another way to buy some some quantity of a given good, or he settles for some second most desired alternative when what he really wanted was that imported good. So in the first case, an individual or household's efforts to generate wealth, save wealth, uh, and invest in the future is undermined. And in the second case, the individual or household foregoes a need or a want. And so either way, the consumer is worse off. The consumer is poorer than if the good that was desired could be freely imported at uh, some lower price, at the lower price that uh, the, the, the foreign um, uh, producer is offering it as. And if we turn then to the ways that having this kind of shortage has further impacts on the local level, we have to consider those, that, like I said, the ripple effects protectionism has on communities, uh, businesses, and individuals. And uh, this is another thing that happened. This was last year, back in May. I, I don't know why people don't talk about this one much more, but uh, in May of 2017, the Trump administration announced a 20% tariff on Canadian softwood lumber imports, so the wood that you use to build things. And uh, and the purpose was to protect jobs in the lumber industry. Uh, but, you know, it's like no industry lives in a bubble. So, uh, for example, in the U.S., there are 32 construction workers employed in home building. For every one worker in the logging, lumber, and wood production industries combined, so everything that has to do with the production of wood, one worker, as opposed to 32 construction workers. So the end result is that you have you have the wood being much more expensive, and so you have an increase in uh, with the protectionist policy, an increase in housing prices, 
you slow down home building and uh, and you have a loss of uh, of jobs for thousands of people who work in construction and so the way we really have to look at this and this is this is the way that uh, economist Murray Rothbard uh, sees things uh, is the, I mean this was even back in the day and, uh, the way that protectionism is is that it, it punishes everybody in society to benefit a privileged subsidized inefficient few who, who can't thrive without special treatment by the policymakers and uh, Rothbard had much much uh, stronger words um, against these policymakers but uh, it's it still holds like this you also have this side that isn't seen so entrepreneurs at home who would have potentially competed with domestic producers of some good don't have a chance to pursue a cheaper more efficient means of production because they don't have access to the resources to do so and those resources with this protectionist policy you're protecting the the status quo um, producers those resources are now now locked in inefficient firms that are the target of these protectionist policies and it's another betrayal against the individuals and households who have been artificially excluded from establishing their own businesses and ventures um, by so this is by policymakers indirectly setting high the barrier of entry by raising the prices so not only do they have uh, less of an access to cheaper better produced goods but they also are sort of blocked out from uh, starting their own alternatives and then that produces a cycle where when they can't do uh, have create their own uh, better more efficient production um, production enterprises they then the, the the rest of the consumers don't have access to potentially cheaper better produced goods at home uh, and then now we have to turn to we have to think about why international trade happens at all. So why do we need this protectionist policy, and why which which we don't, and why do we instead need to um, embrace free trade? The uh, producer in a foreign country goes through the trouble of producing and shipping a good overseas to the individuals and households in another country because uh, they can benefit from it. They they get the profits from it. The individuals and households benefit from enjoying the goods that they can afford because that producer offered it at a price that uh, that they they can now uh, budget in that the trade benefits all parties involved um, otherwise they wouldn't engage in the exchange in the first place that's pretty easy I mean if if you didn't benefit why would you offer uh, offer a dollar amount for something and and if it didn't benefit like you, you go to a uh, like a corner store for example and you want to get a pack of gum uh, that pack I mean think about how much <laughs> how like difficult it is to produce a pack of gum it's uh, you need to 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 uh, harvest from a gum tree you need to have the aluminum uh, that's pretty um, relevant to, to this discussion you have to have aluminum you have to have paper and you have to like package and ship it and 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 it comes out to to what like a dollar something like that I haven't bought gum in a long time but like a dollar at the store and so it, it benefits everybody involved so like the, the shopkeeper bought a bulk 
box of gum for a, a set price, and by selling it to you for a dollar, he makes a profit, so it benefits him. And it benefits you. You didn't have to go through the whole trouble of manufacturing your own damn pack of gum. You just hand him a, a dollar, and uh, and it benefited everybody. That's why people enter into uh, into trade in the first place. When when it when it comes to trade barriers, trade barriers force consumers to return to inefficiently produced, higher priced products that they've already rejected. They've expressed their preference for a, a lower priced import by not buying the domestically inefficiently produced one, and uh, and and offering to buy the the lower priced imports, for example. And so again, I think about it this way: if it's bad for Canada, let's say, to offer lumber at 20% lower than the price of domestically produced lumber. Uh, what about if they offered it at 50% or 60%? And uh, if that's bad and worse, and the more you increase the percentage that it's uh, reduced by, wouldn't it be a catastrophe then for them to just give it to us for free? So do you see how this conclusion doesn't make sense? So so we really need to open up trade just for anybody who voluntarily wants to enter into an exchange to go ahead and do that and not create these artificial barriers and uh, there's a couple issues that uh, i think are tricky when it comes to talking about free trade um and per versus protectionism in in the contemporary in the contemporary context and one of those issues is the uh, as balance of trade and balance of trade is basically saying um like if be given between two given countries uh one might have a trade deficit which means they give more of their currency they 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 uh they s import more than they export basically is the easiest way of putting it but they have like a deficit they to a to a given country so they they pay more uh money to the other country uh, than they um, than they take in money for, and it's really it's really not an issue if you think about it because when people it's really when people hear the term deficit they have this negative connotation with the word deficit because we hear about budget deficits and that really is a problem but in, the truth is when there's a trade deficit and trade surplus it doesn't really matter much because it's people uh, voluntarily exchanging for things that uh, they think will make them their lives better and the only people who can really determine what makes the uh, their life better is is that person themselves at that does that make sense I, I think I tripped over my words a little bit there but um, you get the point everybody should decide for themselves what makes their lives better um, but I think about your relationship with your grocery store or supermarket in this case you spend uh, here in Europe uh, say you spend 150 euros uh, a month at the supermarket and you take home the goods that you uh, picked out and that you prefer does does the supermarket buy something from you and give you money back no it just you you have a straight up 150 euro a month trade deficit with your supermarket and do we consider that a bad thing no it's it's not it's just, it's not a real issue it's a, it's not a zero sum game just because your supermarket now has your money doesn't mean you're worse off so yeah you you took you took home all the stuff you wanted and you have a trade deficit not a big deal everyone benefited like i said before and the issue with trade deficits comes from 
poor, unsound monetary policies of individual countries. And in that case, the problem isn't the trade itself. You don't have protectionism against the free trade. You, you, need, you need some reform in your monetary policy. Um, another criticism is when it comes to the environment. And, uh, and perhaps we can think about uh, working conditions as well. Uh, you see... Um, footage of of uh, people in in Southeast Asia in uh, perhaps poor working conditions or in uh, in South America that uh, there this development uh, and entrance into the international market creates these this demand that uh, creates environmental issues like uh, like deforestation and pollution and uh, the first thing if we if we're talking about environment uh, to address is uh, one of the theories we can point to is the Kutznets curve for the environment, which indicates that you have, when you have increased trade, uh, increased uh, trade increases production, and uh, when you have that increased production with uh, more basic methods, then you have more pollution emitted as a result of that production, and as trade and production flourishes, so does GDP per capita in a given country. So everybody is earning more, they're having a higher standard of living, and through that, more and more, the population of the country will prefer better environmental quality. So in the long run, techniques that are developed will reduce environmental impact of production, and then also even uh, go into... Um, into more sustainable energy sources and more even like cleaning up um cleaning up uh, existing like pollution problems or or uh, uh better methods in, in planting trees to reduce greenhouse gases things like this and uh according to the Kuznets curve at this point uh Kuznets environmental curve that um the the level seems to be at the middle income range about five to eight thousand per capita but this um it's really just a theory and it really depends on the kind of political and societal environment that is going on and, and its relation to environmental conditions of each given country. It can't be the same for every uh, country um, for sure because different countries have different climates, different sort of ecosystems and uh, by a case-by-case -case basis uh, these things uh, can better be addressed but um, this is one of the theories as, as we have better production and better methods and people have better standards of living, um, we, we can see a tendency to, to have uh, cleaner methods of production and uh, cleaning up the ecosystem uh, itself. Uh, and when it comes to working conditions, and when we talk about working conditions, we should understand that a vast proportion of humanity has risen from abject poverty and backbreaking labor through work and trade. So in the Western world, there used to be hard working conditions and even child labor. Like we remember in the Gilded Age, was it the Gilded Age? Yeah, it was the Gilded Age uh, in like the 1870s, right? When we had uh, the the uh, Andrew Carnegie's and John Rockefeller's of the world um, just transforming the the, uh, the production methods uh, and and lifting people out of poverty but you you had child labor at the time and it's very well documented and it's because of in, uh, industrial development that these less desirable 
work situations have been diminished. We don't have child labor. Uh, this probably it still exists in the West, but not in this. It's it's been it's been banned. It's it, it's almost nothing. The child labor almost doesn't exist in the West anymore, and. For developing countries, yes, you, you might see child labor, but do you know when there was child labor before that? Like 10 years before, 20 years. Like, go back all the way back in history, there's been child labor in these countries, and it's really this demand for lower-priced products that, that has given people in less wealthy countries the opportunity, just like the West, to earn much more than they could have before and enough to take their children out of the workforce and put them into schools to pursue, pursue even better opportunities. When before, child labor was necessary just to survive. Now more and more families in these countries have their children educated while they increase their earning potential by meeting the goals of the global marketplace. And then eventually, they won't have to work there either. Like They'll have better jobs, and you just look at China. Like it, was, it was back in the, the 70s, late 70s, uh, after the United States went and uh, opened their doors to China. President uh, Deng Xiaoping, they, uh, China opened their doors to, to the rest of the world. And now if we look at China, the, yeah, the benefits of international trade are just so clear. And uh, China's grown at such a rapid pace, like faster than anyone could have imagined in Asia. That before, it was just millions of people like you cannot imagine millions of people living in just such poverty like john lennon talks about it right like people starving in china uh what was that what song was that it was uh uh fuck what song was that mm, it's really slipping my mind uh uh it's, it's a instant karma go listen to instant karma and uh, he talks about that uh and that's that's in the late 70s and if we look at it now there's between we, there's reports between just 1990 and 2004, for example, China's economy grew at an average of 10% a year, which is the highest growth rate uh, in the world, and uh, and substantial part of this growth was through international trade, uh, because like we have, for example, 45% of the growth came from from exports, and so it's recently surpassed Germany to become the world's second largest trading nation. And the total foreign trade in China in the year 2007 was estimated to be $2.17 trillion, which was from 1978, the total international trade was like $21 billion. I think that's generous. But yeah, $2.17 trillion in 2007. And uh, when Japan was growing, for example, its international trade doubled in 20 years, but China has been able to increase international trade 70 times from 1978 to 2006. So uh, just nowhere else has benefited as much uh, from free trade as China. And those people were poor as fuck. Like my ancestors were dirt poor uh, and um, it, free trade has, has given such opportunities. I mean, I wasn't even affiliated with China. It's my, my ancestors were, uh, were, were all living in Taiwan and Taiwan liberalized trade um, in the, um, in the fifties and six fifties, sixties. So like right before 
so china i would say like it's in the 90s when it really took off but like all before that it's the the four asian tigers the, the four big um asian economies that were just thriving in the 60s and 70s and taiwan uh was one of those so that's pretty cool so just as a way to like kind of wrap up this uh this uh, shorter podcast uh i'll say that free trade it's an it's an a voluntary exchange between all the parties involved and for that reason it benefits all parties involved and when individuals households and communities maximize their economic potential when they're free to buy the products that they they want they have access to higher quality and lower cost resources uh, and can save and invest in their own wealth for especially for benefits that accrue into the future when when these local economies thrive when on the local level people can thrive the savings and innovations can reflect on the national level and when national economies thrive the whole country is better suited to make they can make attractive offers on the international market just like how china did just like how japan did after the war germany did after the war and that's that's why i am an advocate for free trade over protectionism so i hope you learned something from this podcast and I hope you better understand what kind of consequences the president of the United States has locked the uh, the United States and the world for that matter into with this single decision. So I mean he's he's terrible for a lot of things. I mean this this kind of issue is is much more alarming to me than uh, allegedly having some like weird night at a hotel room in Russia it's like an alleged thing that happened uh or whatever happened at Tahoe with Stormy Daniels it's like that's like periphery stuff very periphery stuff i mean uh primarily for me this this escalation of the war in Afghanistan is number one uh and, and intervention in Syria also and continuing just the military stuff continuing and uh uh, otherwise it's just a continuation of the bush obama policies every everything is just on track to be the policies that were set forth uh decades ago by other presidents so uh but this thing is uh, is something that he's sort of picked up from uh george w bush um as far as tariffs go and it's really a catastrophe when it comes to uh, the economy and uh and these are the kinds of topics the wars the economic policies um that are that hurt the 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 united states economically as a whole um that should be the the central part of focus when it comes to assessing the trump presidency and not any of this nonsense stuff on the side like kathy griffin um so i hope you guys enjoyed this episode and uh and you'll hear from me next week on the fun boat diplomacy podcast peace